Hello, welcome everybody to the first episode of the Scholar AI Founders Pod. So in this series, we're going to be describing our time at Scholar AI. We're going to be asking and answering some interesting questions of the various founders and different people at Scholar AI, and we're going to be talking about the AI industry um, at large. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, please let us know if you have any questions for us in the uh, chat boxes, uh, comments below, and we'll be happy to, to get to them. So. Um, Today, I'm joined by Lakshay, Shashi, Zach, Hannah, and I'm Damon. Um, we are all um, kind of critical members, um, founding members of Scholar AI, and kind of uh, we'll, we'll just see where this conversation takes us. So, um, Lakshay, I'm very interested to kind of start with you. Just tell us a little bit about your experience as being, you know, a primary hands-on builder in, um, in, in kind of uh, this in incredible AI space we, we find ourselves in. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think especially coming from like a software engineering perspective where you typically operate in like a lot of boxes, right? I think something that's been very surprising to me just going with this project is things move so, so fast. Um, and I think like, especially after Judgment came out and we've seen all sorts of like developments, open source ecosystem is evolving so much, big tech is moving so much. Um, there's always just a lot to react to and a lot to think about at like any given hour, really. Um, like even the last couple of weeks, I'm sure it's disruptive for very, very many people to think about like, hey, what does it mean if OpenAI is something that changes its position in the industry? Um, so I think it's just a lot. Um, it's very different from what you typically expect out of just like building a product where the environment is so deeply tied to what you're doing on any given day. Yeah, and Zach, you've been kind of instrumental in helping Luxe build various products, whether it be the plugin, the GPT, and, and now the upcoming kind of standalone web app. I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on, you know, uh, a slightly different perspective on what you think of, of, of building these products. Yeah, so building this tool has been interesting in terms of kind of like what Luxe said, there's been a lot going on. There's been a lot of firefighting. It's been fun balancing what's important today versus what's important tomorrow. Um, I think like the biggest learning is probably that there's always going to be the question of how do we play in a world in which AI and Google are kind of big players and then what value can we provide that's a little more nuanced, a little more niche to where we can really kind of swing the bat and hit the home run. Um, so I think like developing the web app and getting that initial round of feedback from some of the uh, beta testers is a really kind of cool eye-opening experience to say like, all right, this is where this project can go and this is where we can keep building. Yeah, I think you touched on a really interesting topic there in that, you know, I think that a lot of AI first companies can be seen as um, wrappers, so to speak, that simply sit on top of, um, you know, whether it be OpenAI's uh, GPT-4 API, GPT-3.5 API, or another one. Uh, I'm interested, Shashi, from your perspective, um, what, what do you think about trying to position ourselves as as demonstrably not that, um, and kind of just branching off of what Zach was saying, um, kind of where we find our space where we kind of provide ultimate value um, in kind of the AI space at large. Yeah, I'll, I'll start by saying I love the space we're playing in, both the the science space where we can make a direct human impact and the AI space where there's so much opportunity and so much learning. And so I'll elaborate on both parts of that. Every every human life is touched by science. It's we all of our, our lives are, are driven by the medicines, the technologies, the engineering, um, the materials we, we use, we wear, we drive. So every human life is touched by science. And I love that we are playing in a space that could have a dramatic positive impact on science. So I think we're playing in the right sandbox. 
and we're playing with the right tools. AI has the potential to, to accelerate and drive science in a way that we've never seen before and that can be hugely incrementally positive. And, and so it's a really exciting space to play in. I think it's the right Venn diagram for us, for our talent. And I think we have an incredibly talented team to go after that overlap of, of the Venn diagram. In terms of creating unique value, I, I think it will be impossible for one company to have the depth of impact in every field the way that specialized teams can. And I, I just simply just think that that is a challenge that specialized teams within medicine, within engineering, within science will solve the really difficult, deep problems that will be too opaque for a single company from an arm's length to be able to decipher, let alone to solve. So I, I love the space we're in. I think we're playing in the right sandbox and I think we're, we're using the right tools to do it. I think I think that's really well said. I mean, I think there's going to be space um, at all at all times to kind of add on to the technologies that the other kind of you know mainstream companies, um, OpenAI, Google, Meta, etc., are playing in. And, and there's always going to be arguments um, both for and against using uh, the most powerful commercial models, models, whether it be you know ChatGPT or the Turbo version or, or kind of wherever it is. There's going to be value in um, the open source ecosystem, there are going to be various applications in which one model um, may be uh, better suited. And then obviously the underlying data sets, um, the knowledge um, that can be uploaded to those models for very specific use cases, I think are going to add um, incredible value um, depending on kind of where those users actually live. Um, Hannah, I'm interested to, to kind of hear from you. Um, you. You spend a lot of time interacting with Scholarly AI users. You spend a lot of time kind of being the voice of Scholarly AI to uh, the public, engaging with communities. Um, kind of online and in person in some instances. So I'm, I'm curious um, to hear your perspective, um, less so from the technical side, but just kind of what what you what you're hearing from people who are using Scholar AI. Um, maybe some of the things that um, they found really valuable about Scholar AI, and kind of kind of what you see as as being the the human impact, if you will, of, of kind of the technology that we um, have built so far, but more importantly, um, are, are building in the future. Yeah, sure. I think that that's a great question. I think that getting to interact with our users on a day-to-day -day basis has been really incredible for me on my side, um, just to be able to truly understand like the value that we're able to provide people. Um, I think that fundamentally, we um, are able to help researchers, students, and clinicians, like mostly in a lot of industries, um, like seamlessly integrate into their day-to-day but like when I have these conversations on Twitter, X, Instagram, TikTok, I'm kind of noticing that there's these more like niche areas that I may not have expected that our people are also finding our tool and getting value out of Scholar AI. Um, the other day I talked to a veterinarian that is using Scholar AI. And of course that totally makes sense, but it's not the first use case that I thought of of someone that would be using our tool. So it's been really um, unique and wonderful to see the different ways that we're helping people. Um, and also just kind of going beyond searching abstracts, like of course, one of our core tools, um, being able to really integrate into a student's life, <clears throat> excuse me, is something that I've talked a lot about um, with a lot of people. We have a huge amount of students that are using our tool, especially as finals are coming up. And to save that little bit of time of having one tool where you can search and find trustworthy articles and have a citation provided for you and you can double check your sources just to be safe that's incredibly powerful and i think that the conversation that i'm hearing is that 
people respect and appreciate the value of our tool. And it's been pretty easy for them to add into their day-to-day lives. I think that's one thing that kind of continues to to pop up um, in various conversations we've had with users and other otherwise is um, how, how can you make a tool that is very helpful, but that is um, not disruptive to the current workflow that people are, are used to working in? And, and how can you be additive without really taking away something that, that seems fundamental to them, either as kind of amateur users or um, even more importantly, professional users who are kind of gaining value in every day. So um, I want to kind of return to, you know, the origin or the genesis of, of Scholar AI. Um, I kind of want to take some people through um, how some of these ideas were were kind of born. Um, I, I remember very distinctly a video call between uh, Lakshay Zach and I in which we were kind of ideating in the space of ChatGPT. Um, Lakshay was putting in some information, um, asking ChatGPT to return um, some sources that were seeming um, very accurate. So we um, kind of went one layer deeper. Um, we copied those sources, uh, specifically the DOIs, the titles, uh, and, and the authors, um, began searching Google, PubMed, and others for those papers and realized they didn't exist. So that was kind of the light bulb moment that said um, ChatGPT um, and the underlying models that run that system are very powerful, um, but it's very it's going to be very important to uh, build structures around these things so they can be used with increased trust and transparency. So um, Lakshay, I would love to hear your thoughts kind of reflecting on kind of that exact event. And then, um, you know, feel free to kind of speak in depth um, as you as you would like about the kind of systems that we have built that, that help correct um, that kind of problem that I just outlined. Yeah, it, it's it, I can very, remember that very distinctly. I kudos especially to Zach in that moment because I think I was like reviewing something that like I'd done research on undergrad. There's just some like conversational neural network stuff, and everything I was printing out was like so perfectly in line with what you'd expect from like the content of these papers. Like I was talking like AUC values, like what was being tested. I was like, yeah, that that looks real good. Um, and Zach was like, can we check those for a moment? I was like, yeah, sure. And I copied and pasted them, threw them in Google. I was like. Hmm. Hmm. wasn't there and i think like from that point on i think the, the problem of hallucinations in lms has become like much much more prominent i think like it's one that a lot of people are aware of um i think we were just kind of like as we were playing around with it, it just became really obvious almost that like hey these systems need trustworthy sources plugged in they need to be like provided in a way that is like conscious of the context window um and so a lot of where we started was hey we can grab reliable sources. How can we feed it to this LLM such that like the user can trust it and know that it's talking about it in a way that's reliable? Um, I think like what we've done from the beginning is like come back to like being truthful and just every single day. I can remember like the first week we released, like we were returning the whole paper and we realized like, hey, the context window is making this hallucinate anyway. How do we fix it? We spent a lot of time like going back and forth, like making sure that we were prototyping in a way and not compromising on some of the things that other PDF plugins do that leads to more hallucinations and just making sure that we can always be a reliable source. Um, I think going forward, like those structures are always going to be at the core of what we do, but I think there's a lot more we can do to make sure that like, hey, like you're a researcher, you're going through papers, or you're just a student interested in science. What can we do to make sure that like you can fully validate, fully trust whatever is being shown to you? Um, Especially in a day age where going through Google websites, like being able to look deeply at sources is just a very different paradigm from the modern form of information retrieval. Um, so yeah, we'll keep going, going forward and hopefully doing it well. Yeah, I think it's it's a very important note that you touch on in that simply connecting 
a large language model to a source, whether it be real or, or otherwise, it is not going far enough to ensure that the AI-generated responses coming out of those things are still going to be grounded in truth, right? It's not simply enough to say, go out and retrieve information from here. Um, the stochastic nature of these systems still dictates some probability, um, even if it's an unlikely one, that those AI-generated responses will still uh, not be factual, in fact. Um, kind of parlaying that, since we're kind of on the research topic, Shashi, if you don't mind just kind of spending a couple minutes describing um, your experience in research, um, where you think that some of the kind of obvious um, value opportunities might be and kind of helping facilitate that process, whether it be information sourcing, helping people plan and execute experiments, um, the, the, you know, obviously the, the document drafting, um, publication, critique, review process, um, just kind of anything, anything you think you might want to share there. Yeah, research is, um, it's, it's a very old industry and it's gone through several layers of iteration, um, starting from letters sent individually from one researcher to all the people in their field to a single printer or common printer, which was the first version of a magazine or a journal, to uh, having a, a version of peer review to simply filter out noise, to the kind of peer review that's, uh, that we think of today, which is more based on, on scrutiny of, of the work that was done. Uh, so the scientific process itself has evolved. There's a lot more participation globally in science today than there, there ever has been. And so that's a big evolution as well. Um, 40 years ago, most of the world's research was published by a few Western countries. And, uh, and today it's, it's a much more international game with many more countries, particularly in Asia participating. The opportunities, uh, I, think, I think science is, is hard in a few ways that we could make better. Um, what is the frontier of what we know in science? This is, this is a really difficult question to answer. It's, and in particular for a new PhD, and I'd be interested in, in hearing Damon Yuris and Zach's experience in, in going through your PhD programs. Uh, it's one of the hardest, quite, hardest problems to solve is early on figuring out what's the interesting problem that I can, I can help tackle. And is there enough for me to do to help make a meaningful impact against that problem that, that I can make a difference? So that's, that's an interesting piece. And I think of AI having the opportunity to start with, the, we start with the base layer of common public information, right? We, we have a corpus of 200 million papers, uh, in, which include um, abstracts and titles for the copyrighted material and then full text for, for what's in the open domain. Um, but on top of that, it would be fascinating to see a weighting of uh, which of these papers really matter. And, and let's be honest, a lot of papers published through the peer review process in science are, are just noise, they're just garbage. There's, there's a lot of wasted scientific output. And, and starting with that acknowledgement that m most papers are not widely read, not cited. This is, this is the standard reality that we're in. Starting from that baseline of reality, if we, on top of the public data, can develop a meta-layer information of which papers here have, have the most validity and trustworthiness, we can build our own knowledge graph of, of trusted scientific advancement, which can then lead us to identify where are the gaps in that. Where are the gaps between the nodes? Where, where's the frontier that we can expand out into? 
And we can offer that to researchers as, as a value. Um, so this is one of the hard problems. What, what's, the, what's, the, what's the frontier of what we know in my field? How can I ask an interesting question and how can I gather data and present that data to help address that question to the community? So I think we have, we have a lot we can offer in the coming years to help with that problem. And then I think with, uh, with the relative value of different studies, some studies have a higher degree of human impact than others. That's just, it's the reality that we're in. And funding agencies want this information. Funding agencies want to be able to take grant proposals and applications and evaluate them for, are they asking an interesting question and do they have a human impact and to what degree? We can help answer those questions as well via our, our AI trajectory that we're, we're developing in that we, we, can, we can understand whether, uh, for example, a malaria variant will have a significant impact on human lives versus um, perhaps a psychology study on preferred brand colors. Um, that, that, that's, a, that's a really big difference in terms of human impact. And, um, and I think funding agencies would find that kind of information really valuable. So that's another dimension of this. Who are the people in, in research? It's, it's researchers. It's also funders who, are, who have a hard job in figuring out which studies to fund. And then the third thing I would add to that in terms of who are the people in, re, in the research community are the institutions who are trying to decide who to hire, who to give tenure to, and um, who to support with their institutional uh, infrastructure. Um, and they also struggle to know which, how to weigh these research um, opportunities against one another. And I think we can, we can play an important role there as well. I think, I think that's right. I mean, I think I have several thoughts with regards to kind of um, some of the things you said regarding, you know, how, how difficult it can be for early PhD students to uncover, you know, what are the most important questions to be answered? Um, what, which of those questions lie at the intersection of what I can actually do, given the resources in my group and, and my kind of, you know, knowledge I'm bringing to the PhD and also the expertise that I hope to develop um, while I'm here? And then which one of those kind of synergize with where I would ultimately like to be um, long term, whether that be an academic professor or a, um, you know, a, an R&D expert? Um, in research or, or, or various fields. Um, Zach, um, why don't you kind of go ahead and react to some of the things that Shashi said, especially with regards to maybe how, how you see that reflected in your own PhD journey, how you are using ScholarEye to hopefully help you overcome some of those things or, or kind of how you've, how you've seen um, you know, your, your own thoughts develop um, beginning a PhD roughly you know, four and a half years ago um, until uh, today. Yeah, so... Lots of thoughts on that. I think the vision Shashi has kind of painted is a really cool vision. Um, there's the world in which you're a PhD student, early researcher, stu um, undergraduate student, in which you're interested in different problems to solve. Um, on one hand, when you come into a PhD program, you can be working with different professors who may already have some knowledge of their field or some ideas for their projects. Uh, how prescriptive that is depends on your department, depends on your school and everything. There's also plenty of opportunities for students to come in and propose their own projects. So I think that being a tool or a resource for students to jump and bounce ideas off of, to kind of scour and find what sounds interesting, what's related to the field I'm interested in, would be super cool, super helpful. Uh, when I came into my lab, I was kind of told, like, you know, here's like, you know, four or five projects that are available in the lab. Here's what you can kind of work on. You're welcome to propose other things. But I went ahead and opted for one of those. It's been a good experience, but it would be interesting if I would have had some different options there. Um, 
Now, moving a little bit more forward to my PhD, I think something really interesting we talked about earlier was, I think, Damon or Hannah, one of you guys made a comment about how do you work Scholar AI into the current workflow of people. Um, when you made that comment, I actually feel that my workflow has changed with the introduction of ChatGBT, um, along with some of the other AI tools out there. Uh, normally, throughout the past of my research, this is how I got through undergrad, this is what I did in my work life, this is what I've done in my PhD, you go to Google, you type in your question. Um, what I've started to find is that what I'll do now is I'll pop open Google in one tab, uh, ChatGPT with the Scholar AI plugin in another tab, ask the same question to both tools. Uh, what I find is that sometimes I like the response I get from our tool Scholar AI better. Um, it can find good papers. It can find the resource I need. Additionally, too, a lot of the times when I approach a research question or a research task, I'll have a question in mind. So being able to use Scholar AI to be able to like basically expedite that process instead of having to go to Google, find a resource, skim through the paper, find is it relevant, is it not? Um, being able to let ChatGPT just summarize the content and get me that answer quickly is really helpful while also having that link to like the main paper that is um, like as a researcher, you need to know where your resources are coming from. You need to make sure that the scientific process of described is accurate. Um, that's like a couple thoughts there. I think like one, maybe not not a challenge, because I think when um, Shashi was kind of describing how do you weight the human factors? How do you weight the science? That's all very important. I think like one interesting thing to think about is what does a world with scientific AGI look like that could have predicted a study that had no clear impact turning into something huge? Uh, the really kind of famous example in science that I like to think about is CRISPR. Um, so for anyone who's not familiar, CRISPR is a gene editing technology um, that's being widely used to edit different genes. Um, it, it's basically like the go-to toolbox for gene editing now. Um, CRISPR started though as a small side project in a lab that was really focusing on like RNA biology. It was looking at the bacterial immune system um, and they just found these kind of weird quirks in the bacterial immune response um, in their DNA such that they were able to kind of respond to viruses that come in, remember that the virus had attacked them before and then build up a defense to that virus. No clear translation in that kind of early stage research to the fact that it would be huge later on in terms of gene editing. Um, so I guess, Shashi, if you want to answer that, or maybe anyone else, in terms of like, how do we see science, AGI, and our kind of world evolving such that we could use AI to predict something like that happening? Do we think that's possible? Um, open to thoughts. It's just something interesting, I think. Yeah, one very brief note, too. I think there are, just on the very specific note of, of CRISPR, there's been some interesting press around that kind of technology recently and that um, there's there is at least one drug that I'm aware of um, called Vertex that is uh, nearing um, final stages of kind of trials uh, approaching FDA approval. I don't think it's actually crossed that finish line yet, but um, yeah, it's, it's a very clear example of something starting on the periphery, making its way to the mainstream and then ultimately delivering some sort of hopefully tangible uh, human impact. Um, but uh, But yeah, I think that one of the things that, that I've noticed quite significantly the scholar is, is already doing and, and kind of, you know, alluding to your question, Zach, of, of where do we see kind of a, a more generalized, um, you know, system heading is that it, it, it has rapidly increased um, some of the tasks that I'm kind of, that be, have become instrumental in my own research in that um, rather than spending time reading the complete paper of, you know, let's call it 10 
papers, I'm able to get key insights from 100 papers and then follow up and actually read the 10 that are the most high impact or high value for my work. So in one way, I'm getting a much wider uh, knowledge base while still remaining, um, you know, my ability to go um, deep on the, the most kind of critical of all those uh, aspects. So um, can I take you one step back? You alluded to it, Zach. There's a this, there's this kind of general notion of um, what artificial intelligence is today, what artificial intelligence kind of will become, and this generalized notion of what people refer to as an artificial um, general intelligence. You know, OpenAI has kind of made it their mission to build um, human-aligned AGI and kind of what the implications of all of that. I don't know that we kind of have a full grasp on what that means, but we have seen in some very real and meaningful ways um, AI begin to kind of permeate people's day-to-day -day lives. And, and Shasha, yeah, if, if you think you um, maybe want to make some comments on, um, you know, kind of what what you believe maybe is is or will be possible in kind of a, a new paradigm that is um, some version of AGI, whether it's um, you know specialized AGIs that just have some higher order decision making capabilities, or whether um, you know there there is kind of this uh, convergence towards some sort of uh, centralized general intelligence that is kind of helping uh, humans at various levels. Yeah, my intuition is that having one omnipotent AGI will require an order of magnitude or two more compute and power than we currently estimate. And, and with the increase in usage of all of those GPUs, like so much of the AI innovation that we've seen in the last couple of years is based on hardware, hardware advances and what's, what's become possible on the, on the hardware side. And a lot of that hardware is being used. So it, it's simply just not available to train a massive omnipotent AGI. Um, and I think main, building and maintaining that uh, with uptime would be incredibly expensive. And I think it may, I think there's a decent chance that real omnipotent AGI will depend on some combination of cold fusion innovation for power and uh, potentially a quantum computing for for the compute um, load, um, but um, but I think what's much more attainable and feasible in the relatively near term. And I'm happy to to have here diverging views on this. What I think is much more attainable in the in the relatively near term is a more specialized AGI. Why, why am I saying AGI instead of AI? Uh, AGI, as as Ilya OpenAI says, is the threshold at which the AI is better than the humans at the task at, at hand. And in this case, I think it will be easier to build an AGI that is better than a subset of tasks than it is to build an AGI that's better than all the humans at all the tasks. Um, so I don't think it's a logical uh, leap, really. I think it's much, much simpler than that, that if we can define a set of functions within the realm of our space, which is science, and we are trying to build a system, a, a common essential brain, if you will, that will help architect and drive the scientific endeavor, uh, understanding what is the knowledge frontier, as we said, what are the interesting next layers of studies to be done, who in the world can do them, how to form those, those relationships so that those studies can get done if everyone is motivated to do so, uh, how to gather that data and analyze it against the corpus of existing data that exists, and how to draw conclusions from it so that the next further frontier can be defined and analyzed. I think that is 
the space of what I what I call a specialized AGI, what I think of as a special specialized AGI, not trying to be better than humans at simultaneously driving cars and science and medicine and creating the design for for new vehicles, uh, but but to have a specialist function with general capability. Yeah, and I think that just repackaging kind of what you're saying is you're almost building this this you know several layer function of um, there's kind of AI as it exists right now, which are purely special purpose applications for, for you know, almost one application for every task. Um, there's a secondary layer of that that will be kind of these subsets of artificial general intelligence that might kind of rule um, a little bit over a, a singular domain. And then eventually maybe perhaps parlaying itself into kind of, a, you know, a, a relatively, you know, omnipotent um, kind of centralized um, a, a, true uh, general intelligence, if you will. Um, I think there will be some some debate about that, especially in, in the near term and, and far term. I think that there can be some very thoughtful conversations being had on, um, you know, what what is our relative scale for AGI? Um, probably best to leave those for for a different time, just given um, how, how nascent some of these conversations can become. Um, I, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit towards a much more tangible thing that has become top of mind as we've begun to think about how we connect um, the frontier of science, um, essentially the work that needs to be done with people um, who may actually be capable of, of doing those work, whether those are individual users um, through Scholar AI or if it's just connections being made through some of the collaborative functions that we hope to build out through kind of version two and beyond of our Scholar AI systems. And, and that is um, security. So, um, Lakshay, you and I spoke a little bit yesterday about kind of how we're beginning to think about um, securely deploying systems in which it's going to be critical for people to be able to upload their own knowledge or their own information um, into these systems such that these systems can begin to become the most helpful for them. So um, if you will, just kind of take me through a little bit about what we were describing yesterday, a little bit about how you're thinking about, um, you know, more specifically, maybe security and privacy concerns with regards to how people are going to use not just Scholar AI, but um, kind of artificial intelligence um, LLM systems in general. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think one thing that we've seen kind of pop up with the plugin and the GPT is that a lot of our users come from some enterprise, whether that's a research institution, whether it's like a private company. Um, a lot of people have this concern is like, hey, like if I'm using this tool to innovate, what's the level at which like that innovation is being exposed to others? How much can other people look into like the way I'm thinking about stuff? How, even with um, closed access sources, like if people want to look into those, like what's the level of privacy? How do they associate their own accounts with that while still trusting um, that the systems which they're using are not infringing upon that little bit of content? At least for us right now, we keep everything ephemeral. So we don't store anything. Everything that you send us is deleted within a day. Um, but I think longer term, there's this longer conversation about like what it means for a system and how we communicate about to users about you are sending us data. Inherently, these topics are conversational. These tools provide input output where you decide how much input you give, right? Um, I think coming back to Shashi's point about what is the hardware restriction, oftentimes, like the compute necessary to run these systems is just generally not available on your own, right? And there's open source models that can run at a certain caliber, um, but generally, it's pretty restrictive into how much you can really do compared to something like ChatGPT as a website that has all of OpenAI's hardware behind it, right? And so I think like in due time, hopefully with improvements to hardware, I'm really curious to see what Apple does, knowing that their level of innovation on like mobile platform, like hardware, compute platform hardware, um, 
for what kind of potentials emerge for running these sort of advanced models locally? I mean, we even saw like they released a watch chip that's capable of running transformer models, which is crazy, even for like a development as of like one or two years ago. Um, so I think going forward, there will be more opportunity to like, hey, you can keep this entirely on your own machine. Like that way you can be entirely secure about it. Um, even if you don't have hardware that's like top of the line. Um, but I think for now, like it's all about communicating well and making sure that when you're operating a system that is, that has people trusting that you're not doing anything wrong with it, designing it thoughtfully, communicating about it correctly, um, such that people know that, yes, whatever we are sending to you, it's private, it's secure. We don't look at it. We don't train off of it. Um, it never goes beyond the scope of your input output loop and it's over. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I think it's it's important too. One of the things that you said to me yesterday, I think that really resonated was this is not the first paradigm in which we're seeing that relationship, right? Other software, especially as they exist in the business to business space, um, rely on, on this kind of trust loop, right? Or these kind of these kind of firewalls, if you will, um, that, that have gatekept what what needs to be um, and is and is rightfully so private information away from the kind of organizations that are actually delivering their value through the ultimate uh, you know, software tools. So I kind of want to leave um, Scholar AI for for a bit, just to kind of talk about more AI at large. Um, we are we are coming into this podcast at a, at an interesting time, just given all of the recent changes um, that were made, unmade, and then continue to be kind of um, you know permeated through OpenAI specifically. But then but then um, even more so, there's there's more information um, coming down from some other um, you know fairly prominent um, artificial intelligence companies about leadership changes and those kind of things. And I think this is just a, a, an indication that um, people people don't really know exactly where this is all headed. Um, people people have their own hypotheses about where these things are going, about the best ways to use these systems, um, about what dangers um, and benefits they may or may not uh, pose to kind of um, humanity at the individual level, but then also kind of at a, at a much larger level. So um, maybe, Zach, I'll, I'll start with you and just let you react kind of to the news that kind of came abruptly out of OpenAI, whether it be regards to, um, you know, the, the CEO there being kind of removed and reinstated, um, what kind of permeable effects we felt because of that, how we reacted um, to that, and then we can kind of each each remark um, thoughtfully about kind of what's, what's going on there. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'll have the most interesting reaction, but um, in general, there's a lot of noise out there, right? There's a lot of things happening, there's a lot of things moving. Um, I think one of our jobs as people in the space, as engineers, is to say, how do we filter out the kind of signal from the noise? Um, I think the signal is that the AI space is changing. There's new technology coming out. Each time the technology kind of takes a step forward, the question becomes, you know, what what is relevant, what changes, what doesn't change? Uh, so I guess in all that news, yes, there's been a lot of news. Yes, you had Sam Altman fired, reinstated, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, I think that you have open AIs trying to deliver top-notch AI programs. They're continuing to come out with great models. You have other companies delivering more and more interesting models. You have the context windows uh, getting larger and larger. I think the largest ones are now over 200,000. Um, context window over 200,000 units. Um, so I guess at the end of the day, we know we're in a space that's evolving and changing. We know that it could go a lot of different directions, but ultimately what's going to matter is how do we harness that technology to deliver tangible value for customers? Um, to not pull it all the way back down to Scala, but you know, it's, you have these tools that can do things. What can they do? They can analyze information. They can analyze uh, data. 
They can help you interpret things. Um, and then the question is, how do you then use those tools? What does it look like if those tools change and get better? Um, how do you adapt to that is kind of, I think, the main question that businesses in our space need to be asking ourselves. Um, so I think ultimately it's important to keep a pulse on what's going on. It's important to understand what are the signals out there while also keeping those conversations open with customers and understanding what is it that we can help what problems can we help alleviate and how can we take our knowledge of the AI space and our knowledge of the customers and marry those things together. Look, I know you have very specific thoughts about kind of the reaction to the developer conference and kind of the kind of tidal wave of change that inspired it. Scholar AI in the, in the very short term um, that kind of has since subsided a little bit, but there was, there was a time when plugins were there and then the next second um, they were not, there was a thing that was announced that, you know, is, is generally referred to now as the GPT store. Um, um, people have, have kind of likened this time to the early days of the app store in which people were, were building. Um, I, I'm just curious again, from the developer side, um, what, what that experience was like. Also, I guess, um, interestingly enough, that caught you on the other side of the world as well. So trying to balance that with a time change that, um, that existed there. Um, it, it'd be really interesting to hear kind of uh, your reaction to that. Yeah. I had a, a very fun Monday morning i think it was like 10 a.m my time in or 10 p.m my time in india when the developer conference started i was like eager like oh that's a cool demo and i was pretty excited about all the stuff they're releasing and they said like this is live now it's going out and i think like of course there's some stuff we do like pdf interpolation and being able to look at some content that of course gpt has made a lot easier but that's okay like we just adapt we move on and then give it two hours 2 a.m my time ta-da plugins are gone <laughs> Cheers. Enjoy. Um, and so I had a very, a very fun couple of four hours um, where India was having like this massive pollution wave. This all, was also happening. So I was just wheezing at a <laughs> three in the morning, trying to get something out, figure out like solutions. Um, finally it worked out. Okay. Like the plugin like disappearance was a bug. Um, but I think overall, like, I think to me, what's the most interesting kind of like takeaway from dev day is we see companies like OpenAI, like Anthropic, um, like continuing to kind of like push what is the cutting edge of what these models are capable of. And I think, especially in the context of like, where does open source play a role? Where do startups play a role in like applying these capabilities? I think one thing that's kind of become clear to me is that like, you have to be pretty specific as a startup as to like, what is, who are you serving and what do they want? Um, I think especially as it relates to open source, I'm very curious to see like, how it ends up playing out, uh, especially on the developer side, given that one running like these open source models for, you know, any like a small amount of users is pretty cost prohibitive, right? Like it's a really expensive thing to engage with, but if you want quality, that means that in the same way you rely on AWS or GCP for your server offering, maybe in due time, it'll be the sort of thing where you just rely on these cloud platforms to give you your LM offering, right? Um, so I think it'll be interesting. I think the open source debate versus ChatGPT and who manages to maintain like what is the best is something that will continue to evolve. Um, I'm just kind of interested to see. It'll be interesting to watch what OpenAI does, given, of course, a lot of that debate about what was happening that Dev Day weekend and where OpenAI as a company is going is between commercializing versus pushing the research edge um, and seeing what the final outcomes of that are. Um, we are, of course, early days. Lots of developers want to build a lot of exciting things. OpenAI will probably build a lot of those same things in due time. Um, we just have to stay reactive and I think keep on listening to like what your users ultimately want and just making sure that they're being heard.
Yeah, I think you I think you said it well and, and you touched on it. I mean, ultimately our job as a as both a company and as as people trying to build in the AI space is to deliver value to people. And so when models see improvements, whether it be, you know, the newest version of the GPT model from OpenAI or or otherwise, that's a that's a net win for for everybody, right? If if all of a sudden the model could do something that used to require our system, um, that actually allows us to free up resources to go and build other more important things that the model can't do. And, and in some ways, um, there's a moving target of what technically needs to be developed in order to, to actually satisfy user needs. Um, but the overall goal of actually satisfying those user needs um, remain the same. And so, um, Scott, uh, Shashi, I, I think I also want to kind of pick your brain a little bit about um, this is not your first venture. Um, this is, you know, you're, you've been in the entrepreneurship space for a long time. So um, if you maybe just would like to share a few thoughts on some of the similarities that you're seeing with this venture um, compared to other ventures, but then also what I'm sure are um, wild differences of this venture compared to maybe some of the other experiences that you've had in your entrepreneurship journey this far. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the, the biggest benefit of being in the realm of entrepreneurship is the opportunity for constant learning. And this AI space is, is a fire hose of that because everybody sees the potential just to kind of add on to the kind of, um, the open AI, um, drama of the last couple of weeks and, and kind of incorporate that question into, into the answer as well. Uh, it's because there's so much at stake because if, if we get this right collectively as a, as an industry building systems for, for people trying to get get jobs done, take care of their families. If we get this right, this will be the single biggest productivity boom in human history. And, uh, and, and because there's so much at stake, there are a lot of, um, you know, a lot of big emotions and feelings, both on the safety side and on the development side, there are commercial and non nonprofit, um, drives at play and those things can kind can conflict. Uh, but it's, it's a, simply a function of having so much at stake. Um, and so to, to answer your, your question, so I started a company called American Journal Experts in 2004, um, to help researchers, scientists, uh, edit and translate scientific papers. Uh, this was as, um, uh, countries around the world began developing their research programs. And, um, and, and later on, uh, I started a company called Research Square, uh, which is, um, a preprint, which is now um, the largest preprint, um, and is uh, both of those organizations are part of Springer Nature. So I was briefly a part of Springer Nature as well, and uh, and got to see some of the initiatives inside of a big company in science. So to kind of put all of those pieces together and kind of describe the similarities and differences, I'd say what's <clears throat> what's in common is that to succeed in a in a venture requires a great deal of scrappiness, of energy, of willing to learn in a brand new, uncomfortable space that is not your familiarity and, um, and to make it work. Um, and so I think the key ingredients for entrepreneurial success are the same. I think the magnitude of learning and challenge and adaptation is uniquely high in, in this AI space because there is simply so much at stake. Yeah, it's a thought that I keep returning to as well. And when we speak with people who want to be a part of Scholar AI and want to be building in the AI space, I think it's it's a commonality that, that seems largely pervasive, but there's an, there's an overwhelming sentiment that, um, like you're saying, if done right, 
um, artificial intelligence kind of broadly will be maybe the most impactful and important innovation, um, definitely in our lifetimes, but I think even potentially um, kind of in, in a more broad um, sense of, of the history of um, at, at least technological innovations as, as we know it kind of modernly. Um, so as we, as we kind of wrap up here, I want to, I want to, I want us each to share thoughts on the things that kind of excite us most um, over the next, you know, three months, six months, 12 months of building again, both in scholar AI and also in the AI space um, at large. So um, Zach, why don't you lead us off? Tell us a little bit about kind of the things that excite you, the things you're looking forward to um, challenges you're, you're eager to, to, to be working through. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm most excited about the web app we've been developing. Um, being in the ChatGPT space for the last six months now has been fun. It's been great. Uh, we've learned a lot. I think the web app is exciting though, because this gives us a level of control and flexibility to where I think we can really dive into the exact needs of what our customers need. Um, we're no longer limited to being a plugin on top of someone else's language model. We now get to build a whole infrastructure, a whole application built around what we understand the needs of our customers to be. So I'm excited to kind of keep diving into that. There's a few different components. We've got the front end that we're building. We've got kind of that middle layer where the large language model actually interprets what, our what people are asking it. Uh, then we have the back end, which has always been, uh, you know, has given Luxay plenty of fun over the last several months. So uh, yeah, now I'm excited to see kind of where that product goes, what that turns into. Um, and that is something we're obviously trying to launch very soon. So this is very pressing and very exciting. Sure. Luxay, you want to build on that? Yeah. I mean, I'd echo everything Zach is saying about the web app. I think just the opportunity to go beyond just text in, text out is really exciting. I think that even goes beyond what we're making. I think we're seeing a lot of stuff happening in the AI space with startups making like idea to video. Um, and so all sorts of like developments happening there that I think the pace of innovation is just so, so high. And so what we're building in six months might be a massive level up that will go 12 months and we'll have something entirely new kind of ready to play around with, which I think is really exciting. Um, so it's really just like a kudos to like the developer research community at large for just like pushing the limit of like what we know is possible with these systems um, and just taking it as far as it can go. That's great. Uh, Shashi, what do you think? Uh, I'm really excited about the team. Um, I'm really excited about the talent we have already on the team on, on this call and also the talent we're going to be adding to the team over the coming couple of months. Um, and that's going to give us more bandwidth to do more, create more for, for the research community than we've ever been able to create. Um, and, and so I'm excited about what that additional bandwidth makes possible for us. Um, and secondarily, I'm, I'm excited about um, the opportunity in the new year to engage with organizations with institutions and figure out what their needs are from a broader scale if we can and try to tap into what other other teams in the research space are doing, what other teams in the AI space are doing, and try to create more value for our, our customers ultimately by uh, leveraging what, what different teams can do. Great. Anna, what do you think? Yeah, so I think um, what I'm most excited for coming from the non-technical side of things, more of the marketing and speaking with our users every day type of thing, um, something that was really like impactful for me was just the way that our team adapted to all the changes that happened within the past two weeks, like we spoke about. But just being someone that's not as a technical human, it was like just kind of a beautiful experience to watch. Uh, everything happened so quickly and like Lakshay, the way that you kind of explained that story of how you put everything together. 
Um, I think on my side, the really the thing that excites me the most is um, the positive sentiment that we've continued to receive throughout all these changes and updates. Up until two to three weeks ago, we only existed as a plugin. As we extended and now we exist as a plugin and as a GBT, I would arguably say we have more users interacting with us or we're receiving more positive sentiments. Like it's just been an overwhelmingly positive response. And that makes me so excited to see what's coming in the future because I think that anytime something new rolls out, it could go either way. No matter what, you, there could be unexpected changes. People could not be vibing with what we're doing. Um, and that just wasn't the case. So I'm really happy with the way that everything has gone, but just more excited for the future. Because I think something, Damon, that you touched on is like every time that ChatGBT gets better, like we get better too. We have more room to build and work on better things and add new features. So I can't even like comprehend what what we what will be like in a year. So over overwhelmingly excited about a few things. But yeah, I think it's all really well said by everybody. I mean, just the only thing I would add is um, I've been continuously impressed and um, encouraged by the eagerness at which people have been wanting to join. Um, Scholar AI to continue building in the AI space. Um, we speak with people all the time who are um, enthusiastic about contributing in ways that they think will be helpful. Um, I think that we have demonstrated that the types of products that we aim to build um, fill a, a growing need um, in the market as it speaks specifically to researchers, um, but then, you know, even more broadly than that, through all of the various uh, different user groups, um, different user segments that have, have gotten real value out of out of the things that um, Luxay, Zach, and others on our team um, have built so far. And so with that, um, I'll, I'll wrap this episode. Thank you to everyone who has joined us. Thank you to everyone here who has um, contributed their time. Um, and we will see you all Next week, our plan is to begin recording um, one of these per week. Um, you guys can find us on all of the traditional uh, podcast spots as well as on our uh, YouTube channel. So please be on the watch out for uh, new videos dropping pretty regularly. And thank you all for joining. <laughs>